This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. You're listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and the work of civil society. I'm your host, Rod Davis, and this is episode 40. And in this episode, we're going to take a bit of a look back at what the last year uh, had to offer for philanthropy and civil society uh, and have a bit of a think about what the the coming year might uh, might bring, and also a quick review of the predictions that we made at this time last year to see uh, how right or wrong we were about those things. I should say at this point that having got to the end of this recording, I realised that it had run rather long and wouldn't necessarily work as a as a single episode. So what I've done is split it into two parts. Um, so in this first part, you'll find the review of 2018 and a look back over the predictions I made. Um, and then in part two, which you can download separately, you can get the predictions for 2019. So I think it's been a particularly interesting year for my money when it comes to philanthropy and, and civil society. Um, I think there have been you know, some big stories in the news. There's been a couple of big books out that we'll um, touch on in a moment. Um, and through all of those, I think there's been a sense of people really kind of engaging with some of the big meaty questions about the role of philanthropy within society and democracy and kind of where civil society might be going in the future. And I think there's an increasing number of people starting to sort of accept that we might be at a a particularly important moment in terms of some quite significant shifts happening and that we all perhaps need to think pretty seriously about some, some fairly fundamental changes to the way that we understand civil society. And I think I'm not going to try and cover off every single philanthropy or non-profit or charity story that's happened this year. Apart from anything else, I can't remember all of them. And I've been back through my Twitter timeline and done a bit of Googling to try and remind myself about the year. But I have inevitably um, forgotten some of them or missed them. So if I don't cover your favourite charity or non-profit story, I can only apologise. But I think what I wanted to to do is just take it thematically and and to to spell out that I think the the stories this year highlight a couple of kind of big trends that are that we're seeing at the moment in the world of philanthropy and civil society, and and that's around trust, uh, power, and and accountability. Um, so if you think back to January um here in the UK certainly um one of the the big stories that broke then was about the uh the president's club dinner which was a a big sort of black tie fundraising event over here for an organization called the president's club which uh does quite a lot of uh, money sort of fun uh, of work fundraising for hospitals and and other sort of uh, organizations in London and beyond but the the Financial Times sent some undercover reporters to one of their big black tie fundraising galas, and then they wrote up this um, quite uh, kind of shocking um, expose of what went on there and the kind of the behaviour of some of the donors who were attending and, and all this sort of stuff. 
And I think it, it sort of immediately raised quite a lot of questions. I mean, it painted philanthropy, I think, particularly in a, in a pretty poor light and raised quite a lot of questions about the power imbalance between the people who have the money and the people who are trying to get them to give it for good causes. And also just sort of some questions about how much you are willing to accept in the, you know, in the way of kind of poor behaviour or kind of people crossing um, social boundaries or kind of lines in terms of behaviour um, when it comes to trying to get them to, to give money to charity and obviously in the context of sort of wider conversations about Me Too and the way in which women are treated in the workplace and beyond the fact that this story was largely about a lot of wealthy men uh, behaving quite lecherously and unpleasantly towards lots of younger women who were working at the event gave it sort of particular force. Um, but, you know, that sort of played in, I think, to an existing narrative around the the problems with kind of trust in in the charity and non-profit sector, which, you know, is, is partly to do with the way that money is, is fundraised. You know, in previous years, we've seen complaints um, about street fundraising and face-to-face fundraising and telephone fundraising. And it was inevitable that this sort of gala fundraising from wealthy people was was going to come under the spotlight as well. Um, but it's not just about fundraising as well. I think you know issues of trust are also quite often um, end up in stories about the behaviour of charities themselves. And there was a particularly big and serious one this year in the form of all the concerns about safeguarding, um, particularly in the international development sector. And charities like Save the Children and Oxfam came in for a lot of criticism for the way in which um, it was revealed that people working for them in uh, sort of crisis areas and, and uh, areas that where there was a humanitarian disaster response um, had uh, sort of bought services from prostitutes or, or had inappropriate relationships with, with people. Um, and again, the sort of the power dynamics within that between sort of western aid workers coming in and people who are living in extremely difficult circumstances made it a very uncomfortable story and sort of raised concerns about whether the international development sector had a particular problem with regard to safeguarding because of the nature of the work and the opportunities afforded for people with sort of predatory sexual instincts um may meant that this was going to be something that they needed to pay particular attention to and and that is an ongoing story there was a a fairly kind of uh, serious response from government and the Department for International Development here in the UK um, and other government aid agencies, I think, have sort of highlighted the need for uh, the international development uh, non-profit sector to get its house in order when it comes to safeguarding. And I don't think that is an issue that has, has gone away yet. Um, so I think those are kind of two examples of the, the sort of ongoing narrative um, about trust in, in charities and non-profit organisations. Um, and this was, again, reflected um, here in the UK in terms of pronouncements, uh, again, from the regulator, the, the Charity Commission for England and Wales. It was an interesting year for the Charity Commission because they got a, a new chairperson in the, in the shape of uh, Baroness Stoll. Um, and quite a sort of changing of guard in terms of the the trustees and the governance there, and also published a new strategy um, for the next five years, I think, which uh, marked quite a sort of significant shift in terms of focus and tone. Um, One of the bits, it has to be said, that was kind of consistent with the previous regime was around 
public trust um, and the fact that it was you know the, the charity commission clearly still feels that there is an issue with public trust in charities and that is something that that needs to be addressed and that's very much not confined to international development charities or safeguarding issues it's sort of broader issue around um around uh, the charity sector and as a result the charity commission uh has made quite a strong argument that charities need to ensure that they behave in an ethical way and not just that they are kind of ensuring that they're meeting their core charitable mission and this is something that has kind of raised questions in in the sector about what the actual remit of the charity commission is to what extent it is their responsibility to police something as kind of potentially broad and and nebulous as ethical behavior rather than just adherence to charity law and and regulation Um, and again i think that that's an issue that's going to to continue into the the next year as we see that new strategy play out um but then the the other interesting bit sorry you can hear some drilling in the background there as somebody's decided to do some construction work on the house next door which is really helpful but we'll power on for now um, but about that charity commission strategy, the other interesting thing I think it raised, which was another big feature of the year, is a sense in which we we will in the future be talking more broadly about different types of structures in civil society. So the idea in, in this, and I think one of the quotes from Baroness Stoll, was that charities will no longer have a monopoly on doing good in the future. And this is you know something I agree with, I think. We're already seeing that the marketplace for doing good has expanded enormously as um, kind of businesses move in and there are new models of social purpose business like B corporations, new approaches to finance, impact investing and social investment where you try and combine financial um, and social motivations. And also, I think within the the kind of the core of civil society itself, I think technology is enabling people to organized in new and interesting ways so i think there has been a real kind of emphasis on networked models of social change so a lot of the big social movements we've seen recently like the me too and uh, black lives matter um the response to the school shootings in the u.s the response to the grenfell tower uh, fire here in the uk have have all been much looser sort of networked responses rather than led by any one single traditional centralized organization and i think that is definitely kind of one of the big trends that we are going to be thinking through over the next year and beyond um and the the interesting thing i think about that trend was that was a, a real centerpiece of another um uh, sort of big publication uh, here in the uk uh, this year which was the report of the civil society futures commission um, now this is an interesting commission that's been running for the last few years where it's independent from government and the, the purpose behind it was to go around the country and kind of uh, get views and thoughts and insight on what the big challenges might be for civil society in, in the next five to ten years and kind of what the response from civil society might have to be. And it was quite a, a challenging publication and one of the, the things within it um, that is offered as a challenge is the idea that we might need to sort of fundamentally change our notion of what civil society is and what the organisations in it might be. And we might need to start thinking much more about kind of 
looser organizational forms and ways of people joining together uh, on a kind of shorter term basis to achieve uh, social change rather than thinking in terms of institutions and traditional organizations like charities um and again i think we'll we'll pick up on some of these ideas when we we come to predictions a bit later on in the podcast um and then the other thing that that we saw this year i think which is relevant is a couple of big uh books about philanthropy or kind of that were relevant to uh civil society um and i just want to to flag up a, a couple of them um so the um the the first one that i wanted to uh talk about because it kind of made pretty big waves in the in the us and beyond was uh, anand giridharadas's book winners take all uh it's called the uh it, the elite philanthropy and the charade of changing the world or something something along those lines i've got it in front of me just at the moment and this was a book uh it's kind of sort of pretty stinging critique of um elite philanthropy and a particular approach to sort of elite big money philanthropy that is based in market principles and the idea that you can kind of have your cake and eat it so you can you can sort of uh make a lot of money within a, a market economy and then use philanthropy as a way of discharging your responsibility uh to society and and in actual fact go beyond that and claim that that is the best way of dealing with the problems of society perhaps even better than uh electoral democracy and and kind of public expenditure uh, and giridharadas's critique here is that actually some of the problems of inequality and poverty are more fundamentally to do with the structures that are in place in society and actually if you are committed to keeping those structures in place you are only ever going to be part of the problem rather than part of the the solution um no, so it's a very interesting book i certainly recommend that people read it you don't necessarily have to agree with with all of it um i'll put some links in the show notes to a reasonably detailed um article i did kind of giving some some thoughts on this and where i thought it was most telling and where i thought some of the criticisms perhaps you know didn't work quite so well um but but it's certainly something that has got a lot of tongues wagging a lot of people thinking in in the philanthropy world and beyond um another uh, big book that was out a, a bit after that um was uh, just giving by rob reish from stanford university and listeners to the podcast um may remember that uh, actually the the last episode we had i think no uh, last but one episode um we had uh, was an interview with rob reish about his book um so you know do do download that and listen to it if you haven't already um, but that book is probably a slightly more measured um, critique um, from the polit- uh, perspective of a, a political uh, theorist, political philosopher, asking some quite deep questions about what the role is of philanthropy within uh, a liberal democracy um, or just kind of society more broadly and how we, we best understand that and how we justify the role of philanthropy and and the tax uh, advantages that we offer it um which is again you know I, I heartily recommend reading it and obviously listening to that podcast and then there've been some some other interesting books so one that i haven't read yet but i i'm certainly intending to because it's um, i've seen a lot of uh stuff about it on on twitter and, and beyond and it sounds very interesting it's a book called decolonizing wealth by edgar villanueva um and as far as i understand it that is a kind of critique of the way in which a lot of wealth creation sort of uh, contains fundamental elements of of sort of colonialism um and that is problematic and also that 
when philanthropy is used as uh, as a way of addressing some of those issues the only way that it can overcome those inherent uh, flaws is by engaging with indigenous communities in a in a kind of meaningful way so i'm i'm looking forward to reading that early on in the new year um and then the final book i'll i'll flag up which isn't directly about philanthropy except in a way i, I think it kind of it is uh, given what we were saying earlier about network models and the way in which civil society is going to be um uh, working in the future um is uh new power uh by henry timms and jeremy hymans um and again you may remember that one the first interview we ever had on this podcast uh back in march i think it was was with jeremy hymans talking about new power and and how the ideas in that book related to philanthropy and civil society so if you're interested in finding out more that's a, that's a great place to start um, so I think you know that that for me encapsulates what has happened over this year, and I, I certainly you know recommend going away and reading some of those books and digesting some of these criticisms because I think as we go into the the next year, um, I think these will shape quite a lot of the discussion and debate about philanthropy and and civil society. So I think it's really worth getting to to grips with them. And then just before we move on to to think about predictions, um, just on a on a personal note, what did 2018 bring for for this podcast? Well, um, it's funny looking back over it. I was reminded that actually, precisely this time last year was the first episode that I did on my own um, after Adam moved on to past his new. Um, and I can say, certainly say that the recording quality has got quite a lot better since uh, since then, as I was flapping around trying to to work out how to record. Uh, and mix sound properly so if uh, thank you very much to people who stuck with us through that um i guess the other big change that that we've had over the year um has been that we uh, as promised finally got round to organizing and and publishing some interviews and we had some really great uh, interviewees across a kind of range of of different topics so we we started off as i said with Jeremy Hyman's talking about new power and then we had Dan Flusky from the interview of uh, Institute of Fundraising talking about fundraising, which was uh, really interesting. And it turns out a very popular conversation looking at the figures. Um, then we had Rachel Rank from 360 Giving um, here in the UK kind of talking about open data, which was, was really interesting. Um, had a great conversation with Ben Soskis, who I'd been you know really wanting to speak to for a while because uh, he's one of the other people who sort of shares my enthusiasm for history of philanthropy. Um, we had Ben Joachim and Paul Curian from Disperse um, having a really interesting conversation, I think quite a sort of grounded conversation about the the actual potential for, for blockchain um, in the philanthropy world and in international development and some of the challenges they'd found. Um, and then I spoke to Fran Perrin, uh, an actual philanthropist who um, has done a lot of work sort of funding transparency initiatives in the sector and is involved with was involved with founding 360 Giving again, so I had a great conversation with her. Um, had an interesting conversation with Chris Willis-Pickup, who's a charity lawyer here in the UK, about charity law and technology, um, and kind of we had some good conversations about uh, the the challenges of sort of uh, the dead hand of the donor and wealth in perpetuity. Uh, then I had a chat with Zoe Amar, um, who does a lot of work around kind of digital transformation and how the, the charity sector can engage with uh, digital technology um, better um, and uh, then I had a chat with Connie Gallippi from uh, BitGive Foundation uh, about crypto philanthropy and how they're using blockchain technology to make uh, giving more transparent and some of the, the sort of 
challenges and opportunities she saw in that. And then the last one for the year, um, as I mentioned before, uh, was an interview with Rob Reich, uh from Stanford University about his book, Just Giving. Um, so great to, to have all of them on the podcast. And, you know, many thanks again to all of them for, for giving up the time to do that. Um, I'm certainly I've got a few interviews lined up already uh, to publish in the new year and I'm on the lookout for other people so if you yourself are are interested in coming on um, or if you can think of people that you know or that you would like to hear and you want me to try and chase them down please do get in touch because I'm definitely in the market for more of those. Okay, so that brings our our first overview section to a close. In the next section, uh, I want to go on and uh, just have a a bit of a look back over the predictions that I made about what was going to happen in 2018 uh, and give myself a, a little bit of a score to see how I got on. So stay tuned for that. Before I go on to make some bold predictions about what uh, 2019 is going to bring. Uh, I want to uh, look back and uh, the predictions I made at this time last year about 2018 and, and just have a, a quick check and see whether they were totally off the mark or whether there was something in them. Um, so I went back and, and listened to, to that podcast episode to see what I said. Um, so taking these in, in no particular order, just in the, the order I think they were in the podcast and I wrote them down, uh, and let's not you know linger on them too much, um, but the the first thing I think I flagged up was um, linked to the the sort of controversy around the the tax bill in the US and the uh, the impact that might have on the charitable deduction. I thought there was going to be a particular focus on the theoretical justification for tax breaks, uh, and I think I I also particularly linked it to the situation around uh, devolved Scottish powers to, to set tax, uh, cause I thought that might be a big deal. Now, I think I was totally wrong on that front in terms of Scotland. Nothing has really happened on that, but I think more broadly in terms of the d- debate and sort of discussion around the j- theoretical justification for tax breaks, I was pretty much right. I think, um, certainly, uh, over in the U S that's a big part of the, the critiques that Rob Reich has made in, in his book is around the justification for tax breaks which isn't very surprising because that's certainly what I've kind of based my views on for about the last 10 years, uh, his previous work on on that area. But also, more pragmatically, perhaps, here in the UK, uh, the the NCVO, so the National Council for Voluntary Organisations, had a big commission on the future of charity tax or just charity tax generally. But the, the sort of starting point for that and one of the questions was, what is the theoretical justification for for tax breaks which was interesting and uh, I certainly did a submission for for CAF which we put in and so I outlined my views on what I think the theoretical justification for tax breaks is uh, and that will be reporting I believe next year so it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that. Um, The next thing I thought was that there will be even more focus on the issues around advocacy and campaigning Again, I was sort of linking this to what had been going on in the US around the Johnson Amendment, um, which I'm not going to explain again now, but go back to episode one of this podcast if you want to find out more about the Johnson Amendment, and I'll put some links to an article in the show notes as well. Um, and I thought as a consequence of that, there would be more focus on this issue of campaigning and advocacy and the legitimacy of it. Um, and also here in the UK, where it's already quite a big bone of contention around things like the Lobbying Act and the introduction of advocacy clauses into contracts, which uh, essentially prevent organisations getting 
government grant uh, grants and contracts from advocating separately uh, on on issues of policy, uh, and that certainly is something that we saw more of this year, where um, I think there were a number of new concerns raised about. Um, organizations providing services particularly here in terms of universal uh welfare um universal credit system that that is coming in over here there was some some reports about how there had been explicit um clauses in those contracts preventing organizations from speaking out against the the underlying policy um Interestingly, I guess going the other way, uh, quite late in the day, so in the last few weeks or so, there have been some interesting announcements from government when it has been challenged in response to these stories. Um, They have come out, and even the Prime Minister, Theresa May, made a statement not long ago where she quite actively um, highlighted um, her... Uh, that she believed that uh, advocacy by charities was a sort of um, fundamental uh, part um, of the the role of of civil society within within a democracy, and that this was something that needed to be maintained, which is which is very positive. And actually, this reflects something else which I totally forgot to talk about in the review of two thousand eighteen. I've just realised, which is the UK government's civil society strategy, which is a sort of big document outlining the government's view on civil society and where it's going to be going over the next 15 years or so and again that made a a pretty sort of strong and positive statement about the value of advocacy and campaigning which is you know very positive to see um linked to that and this kind of recognition of uh the importance of advocacy one of the things i predicted last year was that within the sector itself there might be a bit of a rebalancing in terms of the views of the relative importance of advocacy as opposed to direct service delivery. Um, And I think that is something that we've seen. I think this conversation about how the charity sector has perhaps become too much part of the machinery of public service delivery and and as such has potentially kind of compromised its ability to to speak out or slightly forgotten uh, that that is at least as important a part of its role was certainly something that we we saw over the year um, and again I think you know that's that is a kind of debate that's going to continue um, in years to come um, so another thing that I predicted was that we would see more focus on non-standard structures for philanthropy so I think there I was thinking about things like the way in which philanthropists in the US are starting to use um, LLPs rather than um, uh, traditional foundation structures because they want to be able to engage in commercial investment or political uh, advocacy. Um, and I think you know we have seen more of that certainly in, in the US over the last year. And also interestingly, um, from a slightly different direction, there's been quite a lot of um, uh, material kind of uh, reports and articles over the last few weeks that I've been reading about the way in which uh, social change organisations from a from a liberal perspective have been uh, moving away from the traditional um, structures of charity in the US, so the 501c3 non-profit status, uh, because they find it too limiting and they want to be able to engage in much more overt uh, kind of political campaigning. So the the NAACP, for instance, um, has switched from being a 501c3 to a 501c4, or at least established a 501c4, 
precisely so that it can engage um, in political campaigning. And, and we'll see in the prediction section in a moment that I think that's going to be a, a big thing for the next year. Um, another prediction I made was uh, that there'll be more focus on the sustainable development goals. And it's a bit of an easy one, that. Um, yes, I suppose there has been. And again, I think we'll see that even more over the coming year in the UK um, because we're due to make a voluntary report, the government is, uh, in the next year. Um Moving on to sort of tech-related stuff, um, I think I, I predicted that there would become more awareness of the kind of personal data bargain that we all make when we um, give up bits of data about our online behaviour and preferences in return for getting personalised, tailored recommendations and products. Um, I mean, absolutely, I think that has been the case. Um, on the negative side, things like the Facebook uh, Cambridge Analytica scandal has certainly raised people's awareness of the fact that their data is very much not always being used in ways that they are happy with. Um, and then on the other side, I think in terms of people's um, responses to this, there's been quite a lot of interesting thought um, being given to ideas like the establishment of data trusts uh, or kind of a personal data charter or the idea that we should start to understand online data as a public good rather than as something that can be kind of commoditized or owned by commercial organizations. Um, linked to that, you know, one of my predictions last year was that we would have the introduction of GDPR, which you know, is quite easy because that was always going to happen. Um, I think I predicted there that there would be some quite big fines for charities in the wake of that. Um, I'm not sure how right I was about that, uh, really. I think there's been a few, but they haven't been sort of significantly um, higher than than previous fines for, for misuse of data. And maybe that is something we'll see in sort of subsequent years as the, the implementation of GDPR really comes into effect. Um, another prediction I made linked to data was that we would see a growing emphasis on open data in the charity and non-profit world. Um, I think, yes, to, to some extent. I think certainly people are talking about it more. I think the ongoing work of organisations like 360 Giving, who we've had Rachel Rank uh, and Fran Perrin on the podcast, obviously, as mentioned, you know, they're, they're doing great work in terms of getting more and more grant-making organisations to open up. So I think that's definitely something that is moving forwards. Um, and then artificial intelligence. Um, I'd already been doing some work on it. I brought out a reasonably big paper of my own this year. Um, one of the predictions I made last year, I think, was that we would see more emphasis on the application of machine learning for social good um i think that's certainly been the case there's definitely more awareness of ai and machine learning in the sector and some some new examples of it being uh used in exciting new ways all the time um the other i mean another way in which i think i i predicted ai would would play out was that there would be more chatbots for advice or customer services being used um in the charity sector and again uh, there's certainly a lot more focus on it and there have been quite a few more examples so I think I was sort of broadly right on that um, and then the one where I think I definitely was right although I can't claim to be Nostradamus about it because plenty of other people spotted it too was um, that the the increasing use of uh, conversational AI and voice operated assistance like Alexa and Google Home would have an impact on charities um, and particularly might come to be used for donations. And we certainly this year did see the start of donations being enabled via Alexa. Um, 
in the US at first, but in the last couple of months, we've had the first couple of charities enabling monetary donations and donations of unwanted goods through uh, through Alexa. So that's certainly something I think we will see take off uh, in the next year or two. Um, more broadly, in terms of the slightly more kind of theoretical background of, of AI, um, I predict there would be more um, focus within the charity and nonprofit world on things like the AI ethics debate and the issues around algorithmic bias. Um, there certainly has been more emphasis on those issues more broadly within kind of policymaking circles and think tanks and others. Whether that has really filtered into civil society or the philanthropy world as much as I think it should, I don't know. Um, I mean, I've certainly spoken at a few events this year about artificial intelligence and been making this point quite a lot. And so maybe I'm, I'm doing you know my little bit of it, but I, I still think it is something that needs to be more of a mainstream issue within civil society so that we can start working out what funders and civil society organisations do in terms of responding to these issues. Um, another uh, prediction I made, I think, was that there would be a kind of big growth or resurgence in virtual and augmented reality. I'm not sure I was quite right about that. I think it's still a little bit too early. Um, and I also, I think, as a result, predicted that we'd start to see the first stories about the impacts of uh, virtual environments on people's social behavior both within those virtual worlds and in in the real world um again i don't think that's sort of become a big trend it, although it's interesting to note that there's been more focus on the way in which people interact in online worlds that that are kind of one step back from fully virtual uh worlds so i was reading something the other day about um the way in which young people use massive online games like Fortnite as as essentially kind of digital spaces in which to hang out and they're not actually very bothered about playing the game it's just a place in which they they can kind of interact um with each other and with their friends uh, and I think we'll probably see that more and again I'll come back to that in a moment in the predictions um uh, another prediction I made was around sort of cryptocurrency uh, it's been a difficult year for cryptocurrency uh, obviously at the end of last year it was uh, you know the market was extremely buoyant and the valuations were frankly ridiculous um, there's been a, sort of a huge uh, market correction this year you know some would say that's that's the sign of a bubble bursting um, there are lots lots of talk about uh, there being a kind of crypto winter or even predictions that this might be the end of cryptocurrency as an idea. I'm not sure whether that's the case. Um, the interesting thing is, you know, I predicted that there would be more uh, crypto philanthropy uh, over the course of the year. And actually, despite the problems in the wider market, that has broadly been the case. So um, we've seen more organizations in the US start to take uh, cryptocurrency. So Give Well, for instance, the charity rating service in, in the US, they they take cryptocurrency donations. I saw something only a day or two ago, a report um, showing uh, how many community foundations in the US take cryptocurrency donations, which was, I think it was about a third of them or a fifth or something. It was quite a high percentage, I thought. Um, and we've seen quite a few individual stories of higher education institutions in the US uh, starting to take these uh, these donations hasn't quite filtered through to the UK so far and I've had quite a lot of conversations with people about crypto philanthropy over the course of the year um but you know again this may be something that we'll see signs of in the coming year and it will be interesting to see whether the sort of 
the dampening of uh, the mood around cryptocurrency um, actually, you know, whether it has a negative effect on crypto philanthropy or actually has a positive effect because people might start to use these things as currencies or to feel like it's, you know, there's nothing to be lost from giving them away. So we'll we'll you know, keep a watching brief on that. Um, and then more broadly, I think I predicted there would be more blockchain-based giving platforms and tokens. Um, uh, I think with that one, I was sort of half right in a way um, that there are some more blockchain-based giving platforms out there. I think it's broadly a kind of interesting time for blockchain in the non-profit world because I think we have got beyond a point six months or a year ago where there was a proliferation of platforms out there all kind of saying they were going to create their own tokens and currencies for charitable giving. A lot of that has died down and many of those organisations and platforms have, are no longer functioning. And, and that's probably in line with what I expected. I was always slightly sceptical about the idea that there would be a there was a sort of market for a proliferation of dedicated purpose um, charitable tokens. Um, but actually what we're left with is a lot of organizations kind of more pragmatically just getting on with the business of experimenting with genuinely making this stuff work. And I think that's kind of where we need to be at the moment. Um, and then finally, I predicted, you know, again, along blockchain lines that there'd be a focus on sort of new digital assets. Um, and obviously this is linked to my fascination with uh, crypto kitties, um, for which I'm not going to explain right now what a crypto kitty is, but essentially the idea is you can create unique digital objects for for the first time and this is very interesting um and there has been quite a lot of focus on that so crypto kitties continues to to thrive from what i can see uh, and actually in terms of the link to charity this year saw the first um special purpose auction of a crypto kitty for charity so a uh, I think it was a marine preservation organization in the US joined up with CryptoKitties and they created a, a, a specific um, uh, kitty that was then um, auctioned off and raised a lot of money for this this organization. Um, and I think less frivolously over the next few years, we will start to see similar things for different types of unique digital assets. Okay, so that's where I got to uh, in my predictions of 2018, which were broadly all right, actually, but I guess that's the benefit of keeping them pretty high level and vague. Uh, and uh, guess what? I'll probably do the same for the next year. So uh, stay tuned, and after the break, I'll come back and make a few predictions about what I think 2019 might bring. Okay, so that brings us to the end of part one of episode 40, looking back over 2018 uh, and the predictions I made last year and kind of how successful or not we were with those. Um, so I hope you've enjoyed that. As I say, part two is available separately for download now. Um, so I would encourage you to, to go away and check that out if you've enjoyed this. Um, if you don't want to, to go in, uh, download that, that's absolutely fine. Um, but more broadly, um, if you've enjoyed the sort of things I've been talking about here, check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. If you've got ideas for things we could do on the podcast or people we could interview, or you yourself would like to be interviewed, drop me a line at givingthought at cafonline.org. Uh, follow me on Twitter if you like that kind of thing at rodri underscore h underscore davis. Other than that, like, subscribe, please share with all your friends and have a great start to 2019. Bye!